Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew 5, I encourage you to take a look at the sermon notes today as we follow along. Very important passage of Scripture this morning. Of course, they're all important. They all have significance. But today's passage is really foundational to understanding the heart of the message of Christianity. Now, you'd say, okay, well, I am a Christian, so uh, I, I guess I'm good, and maybe I don't need to pay attention. Well, I don't think you would think that, but just in case, it's a good place for us to be brought back to. It's a good reminder. Jesus is speaking in his Sermon on the Mount, and he's been speaking about the kingdom of heaven. He's been speaking about God's kingdom, the place in our lives where God is ruling and God is reigning. And the kingdom of heaven is the theme. The kingdom is the theme of the book of Matthew. So if you're joining us for the first time today, that's our series. It's these themes from the book of Matthew. And we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the heart of the teachings of Jesus. We've seen a couple of themes in the Sermon on the Mount already, but today we come to the theme of kingdom righteousness. What what does it mean to be righteous in God's kingdom? I don't know that people spend a lot of time thinking about righteousness. Sometimes not even Christian people. But righteousness, we're simply referring to our moral responsibility. The difference between right and wrong. The difference between living according to God's law or living on our own. The Bible speaks about, on the one hand, there is righteousness. And on the other hand, there is sinfulness. Jesus addresses this. Now, I want you to notice verse number 17. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this. He says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. There's a group of people called the Pharisees that were around during this time of Jesus' teaching. And he says, and, and Jesus understood already that there's this opposition between him and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees actually were accusing Jesus of being a lawbreaker. Now, for background, you have to understand what we're talking about when we say the law. Now, some of you, and, and it's great, I love uh, preaching in a church where there are many people who are new to the Bible. And that's exciting, that's fun. So I like to just explain things. Basically, when we say the law, what is Jesus talking about when he says, I haven't come, I don't want you to think that I have come to destroy the law. Well, when we speak about the law, we are speaking, and and then he also says, or the prophets. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. When we talk about the law and the prophets, we're talking about this portion of the Bible right here. Now, it, wouldn't have been, it would not have been bound like this in Jesus' days, in the modern book form. 
but rather this portion of the Bible that we think of as the Old Testament, this part of the Bible is the law and the prophets. There's a little more than that, but the law and the prophets sums it up pretty good. Now, it wouldn't have been in pages like this, but it would have been a collection of scrolls that were all rolled up. So if you went to a house of worship called a synagogue in these days, if you went to a synagogue, there would be shelves and places where all of the law and the prophets were stored. How many of you have ever been in a church where they have like an official Bible like laid out on display? I mean, it's like that big and that fat, and it's like, boom. How many of you, anybody ever had like a family Bible like that? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, this is the Bible. You know, they carry it up, the word of the Lord, thud, it sits there. Why was it, you know, why was it put together that way? Well, to have a sense of, to impress and to give you a sense of grandeur and authority. And there's nothing wrong with that. In some ways, I think we've made some of the things of God too commonplace in the day and age in which we live. But it would have been even more impressive if you went to synagogue because they would have said, and, and actually Aaron read for us at the beginning a scene from a synagogue. If you remember, Aaron read from Luke chapter 4 as we began the service. Jesus goes into a synagogue and they said, oh, well, you're from Nazareth. Why don't you give the reading today? And they, they said, well, which, which book would you like to read from? And Jesus says, give me the scroll of Isaiah. And we would have given a chapter or whatever, but he gives a reference. And they don't bring out a book. They go back they scan the shelves where all of the law has been stored and kept, and they pull out a scroll, and they put it there, and it's the scroll of Isaiah. Jewish life, Jewish religious life, was centered around the law. I mean, that was it. It wasn't, all, I mean, there were cultural things and, and historical identity, but there, right now, at this point in history that we're reading about, their identity centered on the law. In fact, the, they dressed according to the law. They worked according to the law. They ate only food that was allowed to be eaten according to the law. Their lives centered around the law. So much so that there had arisen a professional class of people, the lawyers. They weren't lawyers exactly how we think of them today, but they were professional Old Testament interpreters. That was their job. Their job was to look out at the synagogue throughout that week and be like, just how well is Terry keeping the law this week? And they'd, they'd look over here and be like, what's James been up to this week? And you're all like, don't say my name. Please don't do that to me now. I won't do it. I'm done. I'm all done. Okay? But um, that's who they were. And then there's another group that we're familiar with, the Pharisees. And they were professional law keepers, so to speak. And the Pharisees had not only, uh, they did not only understand... You think of Ten Commandments, but they're actually around 620 commandments. Not only did they have those down and mastered, but they had created an additional set of laws. Just to, So it would be like this. Well, we don't want you to break the law. So you know law, you know, 42, section B, paragraph I, you know what I'm talking about there? They're like, 
well, we created an appendix to that as well with 15 points to make sure that there's no chance of you possibly breaking the smallest part of that law. That was the culture. And they were good at it. They knew it. In fact, Jesus would talk about them. You talk about the laws about giving and giving the tithe. They would count out their herbs. I mean, they didn't just give 10% of their, they'd be like, well, we've got the mint. You know, anybody ever seen mint, a mint plant before? You know what I'm talking about? They, they would measure it out. They did, and they'd be like, oh, 10%, 10%. And they would offer that. They were professional law keepers. We don't think a lot, unfortunately, about righteousness. But these people thought about it all the time. Their whole life revolved around being, why though? Because they were, is it, is it just because they were full of themselves or whatever? No. It's because they understood the song that we just sang about. That what kind of a God is he? He's a holy God. And he gave them a law. And they knew that sinful people did not, had no right to be in the presence of a holy God. So they did their very best to make themselves righteous so that they could stand before God. In that world, Jesus steps in. Into that world, Jesus is about to rock their world by introducing to them a higher standard. Look at the verse. Matthew 5, 17 and following. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to, what's the word? This is important, to fulfill. There is only one person who has ever fulfilled God's perfect law. And do you know who the fulfiller of the law is? It's Jesus Christ. He's the only one truly pure and truly holy and truly perfect and he says, you think that I am undermining your laws and your traditions when actually I am the perfect fulfillment of your law. Verse 18, for verily, that's, that means truly, this is, a, this is an emphasis. It's, what I'm about to say is very important. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be what? Fulfilled. This idea is Jesus says, in fact, not only will I keep the whole law, but I will keep the very smallest part of the law. Does anyone know what a jot or a tittle is? Well, you're referring to the smallest letter in the alphabet and the smallest mark of punctuation in the alphabet. This is basically like, uh, like Jesus was saying, Till heaven and earth pass, not one little I or a cross of the T, not one of them will be done away with until all of it's been fulfilled. What is the point of this verse? I think the point of this verse is Jesus is saying that he is going to fulfill the law. He's going to keep the law to the ultimate. All of it, even the smallest part of it. Jesus was perfect. This is, his per this is him introducing us to his perfection. Verse 19. 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 20 is the, is the biggest impact. Verse 20 causes the biggest controversy. This would be the verse that shocked them the most. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness, whose righteousness? Ours, yeah. Unless your righteousness will, keyword, what is it? Exceed, to go beyond, to be better than, to be greater than. Unless your righteousness is greater than that of who? The scribes and the Pharisees. If you do not have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no way that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. No way. Now, you and I, we look back, if you've been around Christianity, you know, what is your opinion of scribes and Pharisees? Do you have a high opinion or a low opinion of them? Not a trick question. Your opinion of them is a high or low? It's low. You have a low opinion of the scribes and the Pharisees. However, if you were in the audience of Jesus just right now, the culture of the day, regarding righteousness, would you have had a high opinion or a low opinion of the Pharisees? High. These were the people, they were, they, as I said at the beginning, they knew the law. They kept the law. If they broke the smallest part of the law, they would go and make the appropriate sacrifice just so they could say, nope, we have kept the law. Jesus presents a real problem in this, in this sentence. What he says is this. Take the most morally upright person you can think of. Take the person who you can think of that is the very best in our world today. The person who on the, is the most religious. The person who is the most obedient. I want you to look at that person and then I want you to understand this. If you want to be part of heaven, if you want to get there, a lot of people ask the question, well, how can I be good enough? How can I be good enough to get into heaven? I wonder if anybody in here has ever asked that question. How can I be good enough? It's, it's actually becoming less and less of a popular question because our culture actually tells people, hey, don't let anyone question your goodness. Look inside you. Validate yourself. You are good enough. But people have always realized that there is some standard of righteousness. There is some standard of goodness that we must attain to. How can I get to heaven? How can God accept me? What do I need to do? How good do I need to be? Jesus says, well, all you've got to do is be better than the very best. All you've got to do is be better, more righteous than the most righteous person you could ever imagine. It's astounding when you talk to somebody and they say, you know what, I think of myself, I am basically a good person. Well, Jesus is talking to all the good people right now. If he says, well, you know, I think God will accept me again. This is the heart of Christianity. If you think, well, you know, I think God will accept me because I am a pretty good person. How good of a person are you? What was the adjective used? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, God doesn't need pretty good people. There's another P word. He needs 
perfectly good people. Not pretty good, but perfectly good. How are we doing? Pretty poorly. Oh, we've got some more P's in there, right? We're doing pretty poorly. Well, that's a higher standard. Exceeding righteousness is what is required. That is a problem for all of us. Why? Because of what Jesus, he's going to explain it to us. Now, ultimately, people have a hard time with this. This is part of the message of Jesus that offends people. That offends people. Because we have a high view of ourselves. The Pharisees had an ultimately high view of themselves. But we have a high view of ourselves. And so the idea that, that we are not good enough, it smacks against our own sense of pride and our own moral goodness. So what Jesus is going to do next is he's going to show us that our problem is in our hearts. Our problem is in our hearts. He's going to give us two examples to prove to us that we are not good enough. He's actually going to give more than two, but we're just going to look at the two. And so there are two examples. If you turn over in your notes, you'll see we're in our second point, that our hearts are the problem. And there are two examples that condemn our guilty hearts. You see, Jesus is teaching that, he's going to teach us that it's not enough to just be outwardly good. We, it's not enough to just be outwardly good, but we also have to be inwardly good. This is where we have the biggest problem. Because so, some people are just much more disciplined than other people. Have you noticed that in life? That some people are like, I mean, they go to the gym every day at five in the morning. And they have a regimen for their life, and they eat right, and they do all the right things. Some people are just a lot more disciplined than me, and maybe then you, maybe you're one of them. And people can, some of you are shaking your head, like, no, don't worry about me, I haven't got it either. So, people can line things up on the outside, but the problem has always been, to finding true goodness, the problem has always been in here. Jesus is going to give two examples. He could have done a thousand examples, but he gave, he gave two that really hit close to home. He says in verse 21, you've heard that it was said of them in old of old time, thou shalt not kill. Anybody ever heard that before? Thou shalt not kill? Jesus said, you've heard that. And it's not wrong. Aren't you glad for that? It's right. But then Jesus says, and you heard, well, I'm sorry, I didn't finish the verse, I got ahead, I got ahead. Then Jesus says, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the, what's that word? Judgment. That's not a comfortable word. We're going to come back to that, though. Jesus doesn't do away with the idea of judgment. He actually shows us that we are in greater, of dan in greater danger of judgment than we thought we were. You heard that, hey, don't kill, because if you kill, you're going to be in danger of what? Judgment. And so you think, by implication here, you think, as long as I don't kill somebody, I am safe from judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of what? See, there's a common misbelief that Jesus 
removes the idea of judgment. That, oh, judgment and vengeance and, and wrath of God, that's all in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus says in this whole passage, you think you are safe from judgment because you don't murder somebody with your hand. But I'm telling you that your real problem is in your heart. Because in your heart, if you harbor anger or hatred toward another person, now you are in danger of that same judgment. Now, people, people misunderstand this. Is Jesus teaching here that all sins are equal, it doesn't matter if you have hatred, it's just as bad as killing somebody? Is that his point? Well, yes and no. I mean, I would much rather you feel hatred toward me than you express hatred toward me. <laughs> okay? I think we understand that. Jesus isn't saying, like, from a human standpoint, it's much better to hate someone than murder them. Wouldn't you agree? And in fact, there was no law about what to do with somebody who had hatred in their heart. If somebody killed somebody, what did the Old Testament law said they would do to do with that person? Put them to death. But there was no law of how you deal with somebody that has hatred in their heart. Why was there no law to deal with that? Because there's no way to eradicate, there's no law that can eradicate hatred in your heart. The law wasn't bad, but it was insufficient. It could keep me, the law can keep me, the law can keep me from acting out the evil inside me, but the law cannot remove the evil from inside me. Now you might be here and you might say, well, I just don't believe that about myself. Well, I would, I would encourage you to ask yourself, are you really being honest about your heart and your motivations? Because the world says, trust your heart, follow your heart. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So I would encourage you to examine your own heart in light of Jesus' words. You say, yeah, but Ethan, I've done, I've done a lot of good things. I'm not questioning that. You may have done a lot of good things, but examine the, all of the motivations in the dark places of your heart. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And he's saying that people will not just be judged for their actions, but they will be judged for the condition of their hearts. He says, therefore, this is so important, verse 23, you should deal with anger as, as soon as you can find it. Verse uh, 23, if, so if you bring your gift to the altar, this is an interesting passage, so if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that th there's something between you and your brother, verse 24, he says, he says, you should leave your gift. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gifts. Like, what's he talking about? This is it. The Pharisees would be like, I'm doing a good thing because I'm bringing what? I'm bringing my sacrifice. But Jesus basically says this, yeah, but if you sacrifice on the outside but have hatred in the inside, is God going to accept your sacrifice? No. This is the problem with religious systems. Religious systems teach this, that, well, if you do good things for God, it will make up for the bad things that you do. Jesus says, no, there's no outward deed that can cleanse a wicked heart. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, the judge deliver thee to the officer, thou be cast into prison, 
Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this verse. I think the idea here is that your passions on the inside, not only do they have eternal consequences before God, but they also have consequences here on earth. If you allow that anger to fester in your heart, it will result in problems with people on earth as well. Why? Because sin is not, the sins that we do, people have put it this way. We're not sinners because of our sins. But we sin because we are sinners in our hearts. It's not like, oh, I told a lie, that makes me a sinner. No. The problem with human beings is we told a lie because that sin was in our hearts. If you drop a bucket in the well, you're going to draw up whatever is in the well. And the problem that Jesus says, and this is why sometimes the message of Christianity is offensive to people, because Jesus is saying, your righteousness is not enough. So he says that murder and hatred. Look at verse 27, though, he gives us another example. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already, where? In his heart. Anger and lust. These are two things that human beings have a hard time controlling. Anger and lust. I, think it's, I, I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus brings these two things in to witness, to witness against us. Two things that people can clean up on the outside, but it rages deep inside of us. So on the one hand, the message of Christianity is you and I are far worse than we ever could have imagined. This is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So what is the solution? What is the hope? What is the answer? Well, the answer is you and I need a new heart. We need a, a heart, a transplant of a spiritual heart put inside of us. We're not speaking about the heart that pumps blood. We're speaking of, the, of our soul, of who we are deep inside of us, of our identity. Jesus came to give us a new heart, a new life. Now, does Jesus make us perfect today? No. But he gives us a new heart with new desires that are capable of obedience. You and I, we don't just need to improve our lives. We need an entirely new life from Jesus. Look at what it says in the book of Ezekiel. This, they should be familiar with this because in Ezekiel 36, this was prophesied. Ezekiel 36 and verses 25 through 27 the prophet said, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Look at verse 26 now. A new heart 
also will I give you. These were prophecies that were given in Ezekiel about the coming of the Messiah. When Messiah comes, he's coming not just with a new way of living, but he's coming with a new heart. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. The only way to true righteousness is for Jesus Christ to give us a new, cleansed, and perfect heart. We sang the song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. We need a cleansing of our hearts inside. You cannot clean your own heart. You cannot make yourself righteous. It can only come through Jesus Christ. So I want to speak to you. I've, I've known that there are some people that have come to church even at times for years. Or they've done Christian things for years thinking that, well, if I just am better, if I just behave better, if I do more good, if I read the Bible more, if I attend church more, then surely this will make me clean before God. And it won't. It won't, it won't work. The only thing that will work is to come to Christ and say, I have a wicked heart, but I believe in your cleansing power. I want your blood to wash me clean. I receive you as my Savior. And from that place, your heart will be transformed. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. The message of Christianity is not self-improvement. It's heart transformation. It's a supernatural birth, being born again by Jesus. The solution is a new heart. You say, well, Ethan, that gives me something to think about. I met somebody like that recently. We talked about the gospel and said, you know, Ethan, that really gives me something to think about. Well, I've not come this morning to give anybody something to think about. Jesus didn't come to say, hey, so why don't you think about these words? Jesus now takes this message and he brings the most, the, the most impactful moment of urgency and seriousness to it that you could ever imagine. Because this is what he says. He says, because of the sinfulness of your heart, if something doesn't change, you are in danger of hellfire. Jesus doesn't say, now take this, Think about it and do what you will with it. But if you or I, if we sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit that, my goodness, I have a sinful heart. My sinful heart has never been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, do you know how serious this is? It is so serious that if it were your right eye. Now, this is not me saying this. I'm not going to make it any more sensational than Jesus does. 
I'm just going to read it at face value today. I'm not going to get all emotional about it. I just want you to think about what Jesus said. This is so serious that if it's your right eye that would cause you to have that lust in your heart, that you should pluck it out. Or, because he says it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish and that your whole body not be cast into hell. And then he says in verse 30, if your foot, I'm sorry, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It would be better for your hand to perish and not that your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus said these words that are just offensive, like harsh and bold. Can you imagine in a message, like all of a sudden, the, 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 this is Jesus, he's the, the miracle worker, the healer, he's the person you just want to come to, and now he's not giving you all the warm and fuzzies. He's saying to you, you have a wicked heart, and in fact, if your eye is leading your heart astray, you should pull it out. And if your hand is leading your heart astray, it would be better to cut it off. Now, he's not, he's using hyperbole. It's a, it's a, he's using an extreme example to shake us up and to make us realize that there is a judgment for sin. There's a judgment for sin. That you and I, we will die and stand before God. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And there are many people who will stand at the judgment, and there's no free pass for being a good person. Well, I've been pretty good. Did your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Was your heart perfect before God? Well, no. Did you have lust in your heart? Well, I don't think so. Well, I remember that evening in September in 2023. I saw lust in your heart. The Bible says at the judgment day, all the deeds of men will pass before them. The books will be opened and we will be judged according to our works if we don't know Christ. You will not escape the judgment of God by being a nice person. You will not escape the fire of hell by being a good neighbor. Because we are not comparing ourselves to one another. We, the standard is the holiness of God. His perfect righteousness. So I want to speak to all the young people in here who've grown up in church. Have you personally received Jesus Christ as your Savior? You say, Pastor Ethan, are you trying to scare us a little bit today? Yes. A little bit. Because that's what Jesus is doing with this passage. You will die one day. It could happen before you expect it. You will die. People of all ages die every single day. You will die. You will stand before God. Has your soul been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Have you made the decision to confess your sin to Christ and believe on him? If you say, Ethan, I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I don't know. What do you mean? How can I know? Well, there's another warning passage first, and then let me give you the hope. 
If you were to read further in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, Jesus speaking of the last day, he says, Jesus says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You say, Ethan, you, do you, you, I mean, it's 2023. Do you still believe in hell? Listen, I am not a person that I don't try to explain all the time why there's a hell, how I, how, the point is this. I just, I take the words of Jesus at face value. I take the words of Christ with seriousness at face value. If he is the son of God who rose from the dead, I'm going to listen to what he says about heaven and all the hope that he offers, and I'm going to listen to him about hell and what I need to avoid. Jesus said, Then shall he say unto, also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now here's a problem. Anybody see a problem with the end of this verse? Who's going to make it into life eternal? The righteous. What's the standard of righteousness? Is it pretty good or perfectly good? So who would be able to say right now, say, well, that's me. I'm righteous. I'll get the life eternal. There's a problem in this verse. So we come to this point of no hope. There's no hope. If righteousness is what's required to escape the fires of hell, then there is no hope for me. This is why Jesus came. He came because there was no hope. He came because there is none righteous. No, not one. He came, according to Romans 5 and verse 8, but God, He displayed His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took the punishment. This verse right here, we'll finish with this. This is written by the Apostle Paul. Do you remember where we began? Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of who? The who? The Pharisees. This is amazing. In fact, let's look back at the verse. Gideon, go ahead and put that back up. It's in Matthew chapter 5, and it's verse number, uh, verse number 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the who? The Pharisees. And then the other passage we just read says the only people that are going to get into heaven are what people? The righteous people. But you're, 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 you're only the righteous. Now Paul says this. Now Paul was a Pharisee. When Jesus spoke those words that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a young teenage boy learning how to be a Pharisee. And he, but one day he found Jesus. And look what he says in Philippians 3.9. And be found in him. Who's him? It's Jesus. Be found in who? Jesus. Be found in him. Not having mine own what? Not having my own righteousness, which came through what? The law. Paul was a Pharisee. He lived the law. 
He's like, well, I've accumulated all this righteousness, all these good deeds, all the good things I've done. I've, I've stored them all up. But he says, I learned when I met Christ that it wasn't my righteousness, but it's the righteousness that comes through what? The faith, but not faith generically, but faith in someone. Faith in who? Christ. The faith of Christ. The righteousness, and just leave this verse up, the righteousness which comes from God by what? Faith. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you don't get to heaven. The unrighteous go to hell, the righteous go to heaven. Theologians have referred to this, this as a fun term. They've referred to this as what's called alien righteousness. Now, not alien like we think of, like, you know, outer space. Alien, in other words, like, foreign to me. There is a righteousness which cannot be found in here. There is a righteousness. You can, you can, go to all, you can read all the self-help help books. You can go to lots of therapy sessions. And I'm not speaking against any of these things. But you can do all that. You can search your soul. You can be true to yourself. You can be authentic to who you are. You can do all the things the world tells you to do. You can look deep, deep, deep inside of you. But you will never find the righteousness that God requires. There is a righteousness that only comes from Jesus Christ. And when a person comes to faith, when a person repents of their sin, they say, God, I am a sinner. I am lost. I'm on my way to hell without you. But I believe, Jesus, that you died and rose again for me. I believe in your righteousness. Not my goodness, Jesus, but your goodness. When we believe in the goodness of Jesus, when we believe in the perf that Jesus fulfilled the law, that Jesus did it all, when we put our faith and trust in that, when we believe in Him, guess what God gives us? The righteousness of Jesus. It's given to us. Did we earn it? We just received it. And then we are found in Him. I, my dad gave an example this weekend that I hadn't seen in a while. I'd almost forgotten about it. But to be found in Christ, a good example would be if this paper right here represents me and all of my sin. Because of Jesus, the Bible represents Christ. I now am in Christ. He's covered my sins. It's not a perfect illustration because he doesn't just hide my sin. He... he he washed it away. It's gone. But the idea of being in him, because of Christ, God no longer sees me. But when he looks at me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because I'm in him. I'm in him. And then you wouldn't believe what happens. From that place of perfect security and perfect forgiveness, my heart is made new. And my behavior on the outside does start to change. And I do start to do good, righteous things. Because kingdom righteousness, it's not that it's, not that it's impossible for us now that we're Christian. It's that G, we didn't, without Christ, we don't have the power to be truly righteous. But in Christ, I have new desires and a new way of living. And I belong to his kingdom and he completely changes me. But it starts with realizing 
that I have no righteousness to offer. I need the righteousness of Christ. I need it. So I, I spoke, I'm speaking to nice church-going people today. You all look really nice. You came clean, dressed nice, smile on your face. But I do not, I cannot assume from the outside that you have been cleansed on the inside. I can't assume that because you are in the church that you are in the kingdom of God. That only happens when you make the decision to turn to Christ. So I would encourage you, if there's any doubt in your mind, don't play with your soul. The Bible talks about a man who says, well, you know, I'll deal with the things tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll do this, tomorrow I'll do this. And God said, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. If you are unsure if you've received Christ as your Savior, I want to ask you to make sure today, before you leave, before the service is over. And if you already are a Christian, I want you to evaluate in light of what Jesus said what, you, what your life is all about, what your focus really is. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? It's a quiet time. This is a really important part where we make decisions based on the Word of God. Is there anyone in here that would say, Pastor Ethan, I'm not 100% sure that I've received Christ as my Savior? I'm not sure. I've done some good things. I, I like the Bible. I like Jesus. I, I, you know, interesting, but I don't know if I've ever been saved. If I die today... I'm not sure I would go to heaven. I'm worried that I might go to hell. Well, if that's you, whether it's your first time in church or your 500th time in church, none of that matters. It's just you and God in this moment. If you're not sure you've received Christ, would you do that right now? You might be watching on our video today and you might be, you're at a point of decision. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me just whisper a prayer to the Lord right where you're sitting, right wherever you are, if you're ready to receive Christ. In your heart, you can pray something like this. Say, Dear God, I know I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for heaven. I'm a sinner. But I believe that you died for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I ask you to save me. Jesus, I put my faith in you. I'm not trusting myself. I'm trusting in you alone. Only you. If you, if you made that decision this morning, or if you, just, you wanted security this morning, you wanted to make sure everyone's heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed, but I'd like to pray for you. I won't call your name out. I won't embarrass you, but I'd like to pray for you. Would you just let me know? You say, Pastor Ethan, I, I made sure this morning. Hand up. Thank you. Anybody else would just quickly put their hand up. Say, I, I made sure. I made sure this morning. If you're watching online and you made that decision, would you send us a message? Say, I, I, I made the decision to follow Christ. Amen. Christians, as we have a quiet time now as the service ends, 
let's remember that in Christ, we have a new kind of righteousness. It does matter how we live. Maybe, maybe you'd say, well, I've received the righteousness of Christ, but I live in anger, or I live in lust, or I have that struggle. As the instruments softly play, this is a time for you to make things right in your life as well. Thank God that you've escaped the judgment of hell and ask him to give you power to walk as a child of the kingdom. Let's have a quiet moment. Father, we thank you so much for the message we heard this morning. God, we thank you for the one who put their faith in you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that the individual now has, and Lord, that they are now a child of God. God, I pray that someone in here still doesn't know for sure where they're going. We pray, God, that if they don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day they would put their faith in you. For those of us, the rest of us, Lord, challenge us to, Lord, live lives of holiness, live lives that honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.